For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Our Father, you said that he, who's boasts, he who boasts is to boast only in you. When we consider the great sacrifice that was paid, we being dead in our sin, how you sought us, how you revealed to us the truth of the gospel that we might Choose to believe and be saved. We owe you everything. We're grateful that you take our sin, though it be like crimson, you can make it as white as wool. I pray today for those within the sound of my voice that have never found the forgiveness of Christ, that today would be a turning point. And for those of us who have, may we grow deeper and further in our love for the Lord Jesus that this prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus and for Christians throughout the ages might be fulfilled in our own hearts. Help me, fill me, and anoint me. For Jesus' sake I ask, amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 13. It's easy to find. It's the very last book in the New Testament. And if you're joining us for the first time, we're between a verse-by-verse exposition of a book of the Bible I am doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 14th message in that series, and we've been looking at some of the critical events. We began with the rapture of the church and the rebirth of Israel, and after the rapture and after the rebirth, and Israel's rebirth is significant because much of the prophetic schedule yet to be fulfilled has to take place in a land called Israel. God could have certainly in the 4th century or 5th century or 6th century have gathered the Jewish people that had been scattered across the world, just as Moses spoke of. He predicted it. Jesus said it on the Olivet Discourse. He could have regathered them back to the land of Israel and then carried out his purposes, but he didn't. God waited nearly two millennia before he brought the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. Even Orthodox Jews in Israel today recognize that Messiah's coming is close. Why? Because they know their own Tanakh. They know their Old Testament, that the Old Testament affirms at the end of time, before Messiah comes to the earth, he would gather them in the land and remake them as a nation. And we have seen that in our lifetime. In fact, most Orthodox Jews, sadly, are more alert to the prophetic schedule than many born-again Christians. In fact, prophecy is now rarely taught in the Scriptures, uh, for, in churches from the Scriptures, and that is a sad commentary on our day because prophecy is given not to scare you but to prepare you, to change you, to shape you, to make you more passionate in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we began with the rapture, and after the rapture begins a seven-plus-year period known as the Great Tribulation. And Jesus unfolds the great tribulation period beginning in Matthew chapter 24. And in 24.8, he speaks of the beginning of birth pangs. And we saw that the beginning of the birth pangs that he described in verses 4 through 7 
perfectly parallel the sealed judgments of Revelation 6. What we're seeing today are not the birth pangs, but to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And God is setting the world on alert that there's a real pregnancy. And one of these days, the water is going to break and the birth pangs are going to come. Right now, we're just seeing the, um, uh, the Braxton Hicks kind of contractions. Now, here's a chart just to help you to see an overview. When the rapture happens and he takes the people of God to heaven, the Bema seat takes place. That's the judgment of the just. Saved people give an account and are rewarded accordingly. Heaven is a free gift, but your service done through the Spirit of God is rewarded in heaven. And then we'll sit down for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We saw that just like the first coming of Christ unfolded in a series of events, even so the second coming of Christ unfolds in a series of events. First, we meet him in the air. One of these days, I stood over a coffin just a few days ago, and I said to that dear family, not only will he be raised in the air, he'll be caught up in the air, but in a moment's time, he's going to get a facelift. He's going to get a brand new body. God is going to change him and prepare him to be able to walk on streets of gold. That event is yet in the future. It's called the catching up. From the Latin, we get the word rapture. Not to be confused with the return of Christ, often called the second coming, where he comes to the earth. First, we meet him in the air, then we come back with him, and he literally stands on the earth. And as you can see, right in the middle of this seven-year period, it's called the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. In other words, the great tribulation period is spoken of in the first half of the Bible. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And Daniel, in one of the great mathematical prophecies in Scripture, he pinpointed the coming of Messiah to present himself to Israel to Palm Sunday. And we studied that some weeks back. That would be good if you haven't studied that. In fact, it would be very helpful for you to study the book of Daniel. And if you're live streaming with us somewhere, if you remember before I taught Revelation and there's 72 hours of teaching on the book of Revelation, I taught Daniel. Why? Because Daniel is the schematic that will help you to understand the Revelation. And so there's an app called Search the Scriptures, searchthescriptures.org. You can download it and listen to those messages. But Daniel tells us right in the middle of this seven-year period is what we have labeled here as the abomination of desolation. Now, remember, his audience are four apostles, Peter, James, John, and uh, they are there, and Andrew. And they ask him some questions, and Jesus gives the single longest answer to any question that they ever asked him, at least what's recorded in Scripture. Now, they studied the prophet Daniel. They knew what the abomination of desolation is. Sadly, today, some people think, well, that's my husband or that's my wife. They don't know what it is. And yet it is a game changer in that we go from tribulation in the first three and a half years to great tribulation. Let me refresh your minds from that Olivet Discourse in verse 15 of chapter 24, Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. 
For then, for then when? When the abomination of desolation takes place. For then, this is why I call it a game changer. For then, Jesus said, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, this abomination of desolation we have focused in on in the last few weeks. First, we went back and we looked at what the prophet Daniel said about it. Then we saw the apostle Paul last time from 2 Thessalonians 2, how it is specifically unfolded. I told you I was going to do three messages, actually including today I'm going to do three more messages on it because it is so important in understanding the prophetic schedule that God has for us. This uh, CEO, so to speak, of the evil one, often nicknamed Satan Superman, he is coming and he's coming and he will bedazzle the world. He is coming with great power, with great authority, and he will commit an act that is beyond wicked. And that's the act we're studying, and it will change, literally, the complexion of the world. Now, I hope you have found it, Revelation 13. We're just going to focus on a few verses today, but I want to read the whole chapter so we understand the flow of thought. Revelation 13, beginning now in verse 1, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance in the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich, and the poor, and the free men, and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, what government and secular leaders used to call the New World Order, they now typically refer to as the Great Reset. And before we look at this great coming global reset, I think it might be helpful just to define a few terms. In the truest sense, the Great Reset is nothing new. It is as old as the book of Genesis. It goes all the way back, and Moses, of course, writes of events that take place centuries before he is born. It goes all the way back, some would say, to the Great Flood when God did a reset on humanity, and he allowed Noah and his family to start in a brand new world. But that was really a heavenly reset, and in many ways it mimics the greatest and final reset when the Lord Jesus will come and he will rule and reign in a brand new refurbished world before we enter into eternity future. But the first initiated great reset that man brought about happened at the Tower of Babel. Man wanted to build a building to carry him up to heaven to worship a false god. And of course, he diminished all the various uh, boundaries that God had set. And so God brought Babel. It's a Hebrew word for confusion. And he confused the people so that they couldn't understand one another. And so the great reset is nothing new. It's something very, very old. But what we today call the Great Reset has largely been uh, initiated by the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the United Nations, and a number of countries, including our own. And the truth is, is that during world history, many have sought what they seek, and that is a one-world global government. We discussed a few weeks ago that 1,500 years before Christ, the great pharaohs sought to rule the world. 600 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, wanted to be a world leader, but his empire was certainly limited, though great. 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great sought the same kind of leadership. He ruled all of Western Asia, North Africa, and Southeast Europe. During the time of Christ, the Roman Caesars wanted to rule the world. In modern times, Napoleon had that as his aspiration until he was killed and his dreams were shattered at Waterloo. In the last century, Stalin, Lenin, Hitler, all with world aspirations to rule the world. There has never been in recorded history ever a man who has ruled the entire world. But there is coming a day that the Bible speaks of, and God speaks with great authority. The only book God ever inspired are these 66 books that we call the Holy Bible. And this is one of the great prophetic chapters in the book of Revelation because it covers and discloses some issues that are covered nowhere else in Scripture. And it's very detailed, you know, unlike these so-called prophets of our day who give these wacko prophecies of things that are going to happen that are so vague, and most of the time they never happen, which would make them false prophets. But their prophecies are so vague they could apply to a multiplicity of issues, not the things that are delineated here in this section of Scripture. 
So the great reset, the, the, the term is actually coined, it's said by Klaus Schwab, who wrote the book called The Great Reset that I've read. It's interesting, and we'll talk a little bit about him today. But there are three truths that are brought out in this portion of Scripture that what man is trying to do today, which is really a precursor of things to come, three truths that help us to understand how this one world leader will indeed rule the world. There's a note-taking outline if you're new. If you're online, you can download it. First, I want us to see the authority that's given to the Antichrist. We want to begin with the authority given to the Antichrist. That's how this great reset will begin. Uh, The chapter opens, Revelation 13, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added almost a millennium after the Bible is completed. Chapter 12 helps us to understand who the dragon is, and we learn in that chapter that his time is very short, very limited. Uh, He's enraged with the woman, and the woman in the 12th chapter is identified as Israel. In fact, if you look at verse 17 of chapter 12, it says, so the dragon, who by the way is identified in verse 9 of the 17th chapter, most of the symbols in the Revelation are either identified within the Revelation itself or somewhere in the Old Testament. And in verse 9, we're told that the dragon is the devil. He's called the devil and he's called Satan. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, with Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The woman, of course, prophetically is Israel. She gave birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And of course, those Jews who were converted up till this point, who listened to the admonition that Jesus gave, they went into the wilderness, just as Jesus said, and God protects them for 42 months. The rest of her children, being those Jews who didn't pay attention to that, or Gentiles who were converted, well, Satan attempts to destroy them. And notice how they're described in verse 17. The rest of her children, these are believers, are those who keep the commandments of God. And by the way, if you're saved, you don't walk in the way of the ungodly. Your life has been changed. And if your religion hasn't changed your life, you better change your religion. Because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You have a new direction, a new proclivity to aspire to the things of God. They keep the commandments of God and they hold, the text says, to the testimony of Jesus. They will not renounce Jesus, even at the cost of their own heads. Now, Satan hates the Jewish people. He is the greatest anti-Semite who has ever lived. He has always hated the Jewish people because, number one, he brought, them this, he brought the world the Savior, and number two, it's the Savior who is ultimately going to destroy him. And so during the Great Tribulation period, Satan, as we studied last time, tries to create an unholy trinity, a satanic trinity, where Satan takes the place of God the Father, the Antichrist takes the place of God the Son, and the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist takes the place of God the Holy Spirit. And because he only has a short time, 42 months, three and a half years left, 1260 days, He is enraged, and he wants to do everything he can. And so the dragon, verse 1, stood on the sand of the seashore. So here is Satan, called the dragon, standing on the sand of the seashore, assessing, as it were, his next strategy. And the implication is is that he summons the beast 
out of the sea. Now, depending on your translation, verse 13 starts in three different ways in the English Bible. If you have the New American Standard 1977, and some of you still use that, it simply reads, and he stood on the sand of the seashore. And that's actually what the Greek text says. It's a pronoun, he. And so they just literally translate it. If you have the 1995 or 2020 edition of the NASB, they interpret the pronoun. They say, and the dragon stood, because the he goes back to the prior verse in verse 17 to the dragon. And they don't want there to be any mistake in light of the way the chapter division was made. The ESV departs from the traditional chapter break, and so they make verse 17 of chapter 12 a little bit longer, and they add at the end of verse 17, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore because he had just been identified as Satan. But the point is clear. Verse 1, the apostle John is watching as he's given this revelation, and he said, I saw a beast. And the word beast is a word that's used of a ravenous, bloody, wild, brutal, hateful, wild animal. So it's an appropriate term to describe the coming Antichrist. Because while he initially comes as an angel of light and seemingly a great guy, he is a turncoat, and he will turn on the nations of the world who do not follow him. So here in chapter 13, we find Satan, the serpent of old, the dragon. He's standing on the sand of the sea, and he sees this beast coming up out of the sea. Now, here's a slide of Revelation 1.1 that might be useful to you. This is how the King James, New King James, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible renders Revelation 1.1, the opening verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified or signified it by his angel to his servant John. So you'll see there's one word different, signified, and if you have the New American Standard, it will draw you out to the margin and tell you that that's the literal rendering. Uh, the New American Standard says he communicated. But signified, S-I-G-N, signified, is helpful because what he is saying is, is that this great revelation that we're reading this morning was given in symbols. And that's what makes the book of Revelation so challenging. Some see it as a mysterious book. They don't even try to read it. And, and one of the reasons sometimes people have trouble with Revelation is they stop reading. Many of the signs in the Revelation are unfolded in the next verse or the next paragraph or within the chapter itself. And if someone just kept reading, oh, seven lampstands, what's that all about? Well, he tells us a few verses later, seven churches. Oh, this great red dragon, who's that? He tells us, Satan. But one of the challenges is that there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation and 300 of those, 300 of those verses are allusions to the Old Testament. Never once does it say, well, Isaiah said, or Moses wrote, or Ezekiel told us, or Zephaniah said. It just quotes the Old Testament, so to speak, or it alludes to it. And so because we live in a day of great biblical illiteracy, especially in reference to the Old Testament, it's just a dumbfounding book for a lot of people. But God gave it to us in that way and for a reason. Why? Because it forces you 
to study the signs that are found here, to dig, to go back into the Old Testament, to read that text of Scripture in its context. And there's very often a lesson in itself right there. And as you dig and mine for it, which many Christians today don't want to do, they're just lazy. They spend more time this week in their social pages on the internet than they do in Holy Scripture. But as you dig, it just impacts your life and the truth is in impregnated into your soul, and it begins to change the way you think and your lifestyle. And so we could walk all the way through this section of Scripture, but we'd never finish it. But let me give you kind of an example of how the Bible interprets itself. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So what does he mean by the sea? You might want to circle the words out of the sea, draw a little arrow out into the margin, and write down three passages of Scripture. The first would be Daniel 7, 2, and 3. Daniel 7, 2, and 3. It's on the chart there. Let me read it to you. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming from the sea, different from one another. So very often in the Bible, the word sea can be used literally of an actual sea, or it can be used figuratively of a great mass of humanity, typically the Gentile nations. And so the word sea and the word water is often used of the multiplicity of peoples on the earth. And many of the idioms that we use in English, if you think about it, they come right out of the Bible. We'll say, will you look at that sea of people? Where do we get that in English? It comes back from our Judeo-Christian roots, as many of our slogans do. Another passage, Isaiah 57, 20. There the prophet says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and the waters toss up refuse and mud. He's talking about the wicked Gentile pagan nations. Specifically, he likens them to the sea. Or later, within the Revelation itself, Revelation 17 and verse 15, John will use it in this way. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations, goyim, ethnoi, and tongues. So on these sections, again, it's referring to the lost Gentile nations of the world. And so Daniel 7 demonstrates that from these Gentile nations is going to come this one world leader that he is going to highlight in a number of different ways through different visions. Jesus called this, by the way, the times of the Gentiles. And so Daniel gives us a prophetic schedule of the Gentile nations starting with Nebuchadnezzar until the Messiah comes again. And so John writes, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. So we need to ask a question. If the Antichrist is coming out of the Gentile nations of the world, as these three scriptural references refer to this sea, so to speak, do we have any idea as to what section of the world the Antichrist will come? And of course, the answer is yes. If you will notice the word the, it's not just a sea, but the sea, it's articular. So he's not referring to any old sea, but to a specific sea. And there are four seas that are usually mentioned in the Bible, the Galilean Sea, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and the Great Sea. And the Great Sea, of course, is not the Pacific or the Atlantic. The Great Sea in biblical times is what today we call the Mediterranean Sea. So if you put verse 2 together with Daniel's vision in the seventh chapter of Daniel, John is using the identical imagery 
because he's speaking about the same region of the world. Here is a modern-day map of the former Roman Empire. It basically surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. And in both Daniel and Revelation, they teach that the Antichrist will come from the sea, from this section of the world where the former Roman Empire was. And so you have this progression of empires. And if you remember, the final empire in Daniel's vision is this 10-toed statue representing 10 nations from which section of the world the Antichrist will come. If you were here a few weeks ago, we studied Daniel 9, 26, and we saw that uh, Daniel makes a prophecy that the temple is going to be destroyed, a proclamation to rebuild the temple and the city will be set, and it brings you to Palm Sunday, and then after Palm Sunday, he reminds us that uh, the Messiah is gonna be cut off and killed, And then um, there's going to be a heinous act uh, that is going to unfold. And of course, it all happens from the prince who is to come. And who is the prince who is to come? He comes from the people that destroy the temple. Jesus, when he goes into Jerusalem, and he said, this is your day, and it was literally their day, the day in that mathematical prophecy given by Daniel. And they missed it, and he wept over the city because he knew what Daniel went on to say was going to happen, that this beautiful, magnificent temple and city is going to be utterly demolished, and over a million Jews die in the process. It was a sad day. And so the Antichrist is going to come from the Roman Empire, and if he comes from the Roman Empire, you might expect him to come from the capital of the Roman Empire, which was Rome, which is in Italy. Now think your way through this. Um, I want you to think through this because this is very important, not just to your knowledge of prophecy, but to personal application as to how this is going to affect your life. So he's coming, and some, by the way, have assumed, I should say parenthetically, that because he comes from the Roman Empire, the former Roman Empire, nobody debates that, that he must be a Gentile. And that's a sloppy, exegetical decision that's not really founded in Scripture. He's going to be a Jew, and let me give you four reasons why. First of all, just like we have Jews in America, there are Jews all over the former Roman Empire. Not all the Jews clearly are going to migrate to Israel. That's clear from what happens at the second coming, that the remainder of Jews who did not come back into the land of Israel, they'll be brought back there, and God will judge them and separate true believing Jews from those who did not believe. And so in the uh, Italy, where Rome is, the capital, there are literally Yehudim Italkim, that is, uh, Jewish Italians. And so, one, it's very possible. Secondly, um, this Jew that we studied is going to go into the temple, and he's going to commit the abomination of desolation. Do you think any Gentile can just walk into a Jewish temple? <laughs> Remember the signs that they have unearthed from the temple that was last destroyed? And they said, if a, if a Gentile goes past this point, it ensures their guaranteed death. They're going to let this false Messiah come into their temple because they believe that he is the Messiah. 
And so he will then commit, of course, the abomination of desolation. And there's an event that accompanies the abomination of desolation that will at that point convince them, and we're going to come to this in this series, it will convince them that he could not possibly be their Messiah. Third, it's inconceivable to me that a Jew would accept a Gentile as the Messiah. You ask any Jew today, do you think the Messiah could be a Gentile and they'll look at you cross-eyed? What are you talking about, man? We know where he's going to come from. He's one of us. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah and from the family of David. And so for someone to present himself, remember, he's called the Antichrist. Christ, Christos, is the parallel word to Messiah, Messiah. Two different languages, same title. So he's Antichrist in that he comes in the place and against the Lord Jesus. But fourth and most importantly, there's great biblical evidence to show that the Antichrist will be a Jew. There's a number of passages that we can look at, but I want you to jot down at least two for further study. One would be Zechariah 11, verses 15 and 16. If you know the prophet Zechariah, then you know that he underscores that because of their unbelief, because of Jewish unbelief, they will embrace a false Messiah. And so Zechariah speaks not only of Messiah's first coming, but Messiah's second coming. Most of us at least know Zechariah 14, where the Messiah stands on the Mount of Olives and he splits it in two. That's never happened. It's going to happen unless you spiritualize scripture. But there's no room to spiritualize prophecy. And sadly, there's approximately 100 million nominal and real Christians in the United States that now reject that Israel is God's covenant people through whom God will complete his prophetic schedule. They are called replacement theologians. That is, their theology says that the church is the new Israel. God is done with Israel. You can't interpret Scripture that way. Why? Because even Daniel himself, when he interprets Scripture, prophecy, how does he interpret it? Literally, Daniel 9, the chapter we studied, he's studying the uh, 70 years of deportation that Jeremiah the prophet spoke of, and he's saying, oh, we're almost at the end of the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied. How did he understand 70 years? (laughs) 70 years. And so when you see Jesus and the apostles interacting with the Old Testament, all of the prophecies that they interpret, they take it plain face value. They just literally interpret those passages. That's not to deny idioms and figures of speech, but when you understand the symbol and what it means, then you literally interpret it accordingly. And so uh, here in Zechariah 11, most of us at least know Zechariah 11 for something, right? It's one of the passages that also contains a prophecy for the first coming, that there's coming this guy who's going to betray the Messiah for what? 30 pieces of silver. Though when you read it in the New Testament, he quotes Zechariah 11, but he introduces it, the prophet Jeremiah said. And, of course, the liberal critic says, ah, oh, there's an error. See, it's not even the prophet Jeremiah. And it's their own ignorance because very often they would take scrolls and they would combine two together. And so one scroll was Jeremiah and Zechariah. They were combined together in a single scroll and for good reason. 
And so typically when you had two books combined in a single scroll, when you quoted the scroll, you quoted the book or the author that was most prolific. And of course, that was Jeremiah. But here in Jeremiah chapter 11, he portrays, he does this little play acting between a good shepherd and a foolish shepherd. Let me read it to you. Zechariah 11, verse 15. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the brokenhearted, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. So God has the prophet Zechariah do a little play acting between this good shepherd. He takes equipment to portray a good shepherd and then this foolish shepherd. And if you know the chapter, because of their unbelief, they're going to embrace a foolish shepherd who really won't care for you. And it is a prophetic picture of the coming Antichrist. Another text you might want to jot down, Jesus said the same thing. John chapter 5 and verse 43. There in that section of scripture, Jesus said, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Because you rejected the good shepherd as he's portrayed in John, Yeshua or Jesus prophesied, you'll embrace another shepherd. Now, most of you know in Greek, there are two words for another. There's the word alos and the word heteros. Alos means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. And so like heteros comes directly into English as, say, heterosexual, which speaks of differing sexes, or heterodoxy, which, say, which is used to teach something that's different, versus orthodoxy to teach something that is true. Well, Jesus uses the word alos, like he does that, if you remember in John 16. I'm going to send an alos helper, another helper like me. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another one just like me. So there's another one who in some sense, alos, another shepherd, another one that will come that is like Jesus. How is he like Jesus? Well, he has great power except Jesus comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. He, as we'll see, comes with the power of the dragon, with Satan. But he's another one like Jesus in that he's a Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the family of David. Now, unfortunately, sometimes, again, when we use the word antichrist, we think of it only in the sense of against Christ or the opposite of Christ. But remember, the prefix anti is often used in Scripture instead of. And that's really where the emphasis is here, is he comes in the place, he comes instead of Christ. So he comes up out of the sea, this Jew, from a geographical region from the former Roman Empire. And he also comes, as Revelation teaches in the 11th chapter, the 7th verse, up out of the abyss. That is, he comes with the power of the evil one on his back. He's the opposite of Jesus. Initially comes as an angel of light, and that's how Satan often appears, as an angel of light. And Paul says, so don't his preachers. He comes initially as a man of peace. Oh, they love him. But once the abomination of desolation takes place, his cruel, vicious, satanic power begins to express itself. Verse 1 again, and the dragon stood up on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. 
And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Again, these verses are, this verse is using symbolic language, and it helps us to understand something about the kind of person he is and the kind of authority that he has. So again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. You might want to put out in the margin Revelation 17 and verse 9. Let me read it to you. There, uh, the Apostle John, having just symbolically described the Antichrist as having seven heads, he then says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Revelation 17 describes one of two great harlots, the whore of Babylon. One is a religious whore, the other is an economic whore. And we're going to see both of them bled together before we're done in this series. But there is a one world religion that is coming that is going to be built on a city with seven mountains or seven hills. And I only know of one city in the world that is described in that fashion, and of course, that's the city of Rome. In addition, verse 1 speaks of ten horns. And in the prophet Daniel, he tells us horns represent power and authority. But here you might want to write down Revelation 17 and verse 12, where he describes the ten horns as ten kings. Let me read it to you. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast, with the Antichrist, for one hour, just a short time. So horns are symbols of kings or kingly power. And so the Antichrist is going to arise, as the prophet Daniel says, from a revived Roman Empire. There will be ten nations within the former Roman Empire that will form a coalition of sorts. And then there will be an eleventh king that will come up in their midst. Let me read to you Daniel 7 and verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, that is the ten horns, behold, another horn, an eleventh, a little horn, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And so there's this little horn. He starts rather diminutively. He's called a little horn, but he's going to come to great power. People say, well, I think the Antichrist is this you know, world leader. Everybody knows him. He'd be a perfect leader. Actually, he's a little horn. He's kind of a nobody. But he's going to become a somebody in a short period of time. We've seen this in recent days. We've seen the president of Ukraine, and unless you've been to Ukraine dozens of times, you don't usually think about who the president of Ukraine is, but every American says, oh, it's Zelensky. You know, he was a nobody six months ago, but now he's on the lips of people across the world. That's what the Antichrist will be like. He'll be a Jew, he'll be a nobody, and he will soon become a somebody. And amongst these 10 nations, there'll be three that will fight him. And this little horn will come up and he'll overthrow them. And he will rule with authority and power. And on his head, we read in verse 1, were blasphemous names. Again, this signifies, as we will see, that these world leaders will stand in open defiance of all that is holy and true. Now, there are many names given for the Antichrist, about 30 Some would say 33. I've only been able to find 30. Um, But here's a few of the ones that are best known. The little horn, the prince who is to come, the king who does as he pleases, a king of fierce countenance, the son of perdition, 
By the way, that name is given to Judas too, right? The man of lawlessness, a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd, the willful king, a despicable person, and probably his best-known name, the Antichrist. But he's coming. He's going to mesmerize the world. He has an agenda, and he's empowered by the devil, the prince of hell himself. Now, notice verse 2 of Revelation 13. And the beast, the Antichrist, which I saw, was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power in his throne in great authority. So he's using the identical imagery that the prophet Daniel uses. Why? Because he comes out of the same region of the world that Daniel describes. And he'll be a fearsome man. He'll be a powerful man. We're told, and the dragon gave him his power in his throne in his authority. So he does three things. First, he gives him his power. Satan gives him his strength, his ability to rule, to be dominant. Second, he gives him his throne. That is, he's received as a leader of the world because Satan gave him this dominion. And third, Satan gives him great authority. The word exousia means to do as you please. It can be used positively or it can be used negatively in Holy Scripture. I just walked through a sliver of one verse where you see how Scripture interprets Scripture, and that's why it took me 72 hours of preaching to do the book of Revelation, because Scripture has to interpret Scripture if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. So that's the authority given to the Antichrist. Secondly, there in your note-taking outline, let's think for a moment, it leads naturally into the amazement produced by the Antichrist. The amazement produced by the Antichrist. Practically speaking, why is it that these people are deceived and follow after the Antichrist? Well, first of all, because as we studied in the seal judgments, the first of the four horses of the apocalypse as the one who comes mimicking Jesus on a white horse as a man of peace. He's got a bow with no arrows. And the world thinks, man, this is a wonderful person. And he's going to pull off peace in the world and among other places in the Middle East. But there's another reason. He comes with great deception. And that deception is unfolded in verse 3. Notice, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, here's the challenge. Some people, by the way, spiritualize this verse because they say, well, what vindicates Jesus as Lord? Romans 1.4, he was declared with power to be God the Son, how? By the resurrection from the dead. That this is one miracle that Satan cannot duplicate. Therefore, this man was not really dead. And by the way, Jesus uses as a defense for his own deity his resurrection, that he has power to raise people out of the grave to walk on streets of gold or people out of the grave to live forever in a place of eternal retribution. And he has power to raise himself from the dead. The resurrection is affirmed by all three members of the Trinity. No one will take my life. I'll raise it up again. How was he raised? By the spirit of holiness. How else was he raised? By God the Father. You cannot separate the members of the triune God. With that said, Jesus said this in John 5, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. In the Old Testament, God the Father Elohim, the Elohim of Israel is credited as God by his ability to give life. 
And so for Jesus to claim, I have the same ability to give life as God the Father is to make himself equal to God. And so it's reasoned, well, then the Antichrist can't raise someone from the dead. He can't be raised from the dead, mustn't really be dead, that this is a fake death and a fake resurrection. And while I appreciate them wanting to protect the Lord Jesus, it's not a sound interpretation. And let me explain why. You're thinking, people, the simple reading of the Scripture is clear that this man actually died. So how do we understand it? Well, there's several possibilities, several options. Number one, we know that Satan has been given power to perform false miracles. That's one of the themes in Matthew 24 during the time of the tribulation. And it's seen in Scripture. We've been studying with Pastor Larry uh, the Exodus. And we saw in the Exodus how these magicians were given power to take their rod and to turn it into a snake and to take water and turn it into blood. So they had some power, though it was limited. We saw in the book of Job how Job uh, by, is destroyed his, his body by boils that Satan puts on him miraculously. How a tornado of sorts comes and wipes out his family. Uh, even Judas had power. Now, I don't think Judas's power came by Jesus, I mean, by, by Satan, but from Jesus, but still, he had power, and he was not a believer. In Matthew 7, at the final judgment, Jesus speaks of those who preached in his name, cast out demons in his name, perform miracles in his name, and he'll say to them, I never knew you, because an unbeliever can do all three of those things. And of course, when Judas did miracles, um, he had the same authority, Matthew 10, 1, authority was given to him and all the disciples over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So nothing within the biblical text indicates that Judas did not do the same miracles that the rest did. So some would say, well, you know, while it's not true of Judas, he was an unbeliever, but Satan can do miracles. And so Satan did this miracle in bringing the Antichrist out of a dead state. A second possibility that some would argue is that God did it. God did it to this unbeliever. He did it as a judgment because of people's rejection of the Messiah. But I think third, there's a better explanation. I think this guy was, will really, truly, genuinely be dead. And I think Satan will perform the miracle. And let me explain why that does not discredit the resurrection of Jesus. If you remember in the scripture, there are eight people who are raised from the dead. Here's a list. There was Elijah who raised the widow of Zarephath's son. There was Elisha who raised the Shunammite woman. There was a man who was thrown into Elisha's grave. Remember, he lands on his bones and he springs right out of the grave, I guess six feet, and comes back to life. Uh, Jesus did three of the raisings. He raised the widow of Nain's son. He raised Jairus' daughter, and most famously, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Peter himself raised Tabitha, called Dorcas in Scripture, and Paul raised Eutychus. Now, Paul and Peter and Elisha and Elijah raising people from the dead didn't mean they were God. You know, when kids come in, I'll ask them, well, what if they nailed Jesus to a cross, which they did, buried him in a tomb, which they did, but he didn't come back to life? What would that mean? And if they're sharp and understand the meaning of the resurrection, they'll say, well, it meant that he's not God. 
And so the calendar is dated, what, 2022, Anna Domini, in the year of the Lord. The resurrection, he was declared with power by the resurrection from the dead. But occasionally, some perceptive child will say, well, if that means he's God, the resurrection, what about Lazarus? Because he's not God. Well, understand, there's a major difference between being raised to life and being resurrected to life. These people were all raised to life in the body they went down into the grave in, only to come out in the same body and to be buried a second time later on. But Paul can describe the Lord Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And John can describe him in the Revelation as the firstborn of the dead. And so Jesus, in proof of his deity, says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. And so indeed, he will raise not only himself up, but he will raise up people to live in heaven or to live in hell. But the Antichrist will raise someone to life. Jesus alone has the power of resurrection. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads, one of the heads or persons on this beast, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And so people say, now wait a minute. It says, as if he had been slain. That means maybe he really wasn't slain. Well, the way it's structured in, in, in Greek means he was slain. But even if you didn't know a word of Greek, and I don't ever be intimidated by someone who tries to bully you with the Greek text if he can't prove it to you out of the English text. If you read Revelation 5 and verse 6, you would see, John writes, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. We find here in our English Bible the exact same Greek phrase being used of the Lord Jesus. By this, John doesn't mean, well, maybe he was killed. No, he means he was slain. He was literally dead. And by extension and application and the kind of class statement it is in Greek, he's saying the Antichrist is dead. There's some assassination attempt on this guy. Maybe the three kings who tried to, you know, usurp his power and he overthrew. We're not told. All we know is that he indeed died and he literally comes back to life and this is going to bedazzle the world. Now remember last time, if you were here, we studied from 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul is writing of the coming Antichrist and he says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his life. John records the slain of the Antichrist whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, excuse me, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose accord, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, because they did not respond to the gospel, there's a time limit on your ability to get saved, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. Now, you could take verse 11, believe what is false, and translate it a little bit more literally. The New King James, like the marginal reading of the NAS that we didn't have time to examine last time, reads, and for this reason, God will send upon them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. 
Not any old lie, but the lie. And so when this event happens, when this Antichrist is brought back to life, this, remember, is still in the first half of the tribulation, even before he commits the abomination of desolation, the world is going to believe he is their redeemer. They will believe the lie. I think what Paul is doing is he's giving some meat to what John is describing and the world will fall on him. Think about this. Think about how this could happen. It will be so incredible. Here he is. The world is going to be grieving. He's going to be laid in state. The cameras from around the world, the satellites will be broadcasting. This one whom the world had put their hope in, there in his casket. Thousands will probably go by and show him respect. And then suddenly, he'll get up out of that casket and walk up to the microphone and say, I am God Almighty, I need to be worshipped. And the world will believe it. And they will embrace it. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and the fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they're going to have their one world leader. Now, we live in a day where globalism, more and more, is seen as the answer to our problems. And so there's a lot of uh, talk today about the coming Great Reset. Uh, in the past, it was just kind of somewhat nebulous, somewhat hidden, but now it's broadcasted. And people are saying, like through Klaus Schwab, through the World Economic Forum, that this is the solution to our world's problems. Now, he indeed was the one who coined this word, uh, the Great Reset, but it's not new to him. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and what he is doing is evil. What they are doing in the World Economic Forum is an evil act, and it's in violation of clear scripture because God is not in favor of globalism except as it refers to his son. Remember what Paul said in Acts 17, 26? That God made from one man, that is Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. In 1951, the World Economic Forum was founded by Schwab. He was its founder and has been the president. They've met every single year since 1951 in Davos, Switzerland. I went to Davos when I was in high school to go skiing. Little did I know what was going on. I had no prophetic mind or no, thing, no heart for the things of God at that point. But of course, uh, their focus has been to bring together a one-world economy. Uh, they used to somewhat hide it under the guise of the Trilateral Commission, but no longer. The last few years, especially in the meeting they just had a few months ago in June, they invited all the presses of the world, and it was live streamed for the first time across the planet. And of course, uh, they see the answer to the world's problems is the countries of the world coming together under a single economy. What they are planning, what they are trying to bring about is a preset for the coming reset that the Antichrist will bring about. And of course, they haven't had much success until 
COVID. And that's when he wrote his book. I've read it. And in his book, Schwab says, or actually not in his book, but he said it in reference to his book, in reference to COVID, he said, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. That's a significant statement that Schwab makes. He is stating here that COVID is not simply some catastrophe, but it is an opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. And for Schwab, he means not only the economy, but as we're going to see, he has the identical parallels that the Antichrist will come, because the great reset is going to come on three levels. Morally, religiously, one level, governmentally, which we're exploring this morning, and economically, that is going to bleed them all back together. Now, again, it's given under several names. When George Bush, H.W., was president, they often referred to it as the New World Order. Today, they call it the Global Reset, and they also call it, as many of you know, Build Back Better. I don't think it's my accident that our president has titled his signature bill, Build Back Better. Why? Because he's on board with this group. And of course, most recently, he wrote another bill called the Inflation Reduction Act, and it's dubbed, quote, the single largest investment in climate action in U.S. history. And when you realize the mindset these people are coming from, you realize why they're allowing people just to pour over the borders. A tennis player who's had COVID, who doesn't want the shot, he's not allowed in the country to complete, compete, but hundreds of thousands, now over 2 million people have walked over the border. What makes a nation a nation? That you have borders. That's what Acts 17 and the rest of Holy Scripture affirms. No borders. No nation. I'm not saying we shouldn't be compassionate towards people in need. God told the Jewish people, yes, you need to be compassionate to the widow and the orphan and, and the alien and the land, but they have to fall under the parameters of Israel. Our government doesn't care about that. And why do you suppose they want to spend so much money? You spend enough money, this country will be bankrupt. You cannot spend money you have not earned without eventually paying a price. This would be perfect. It would be perfect for a coming economic reset. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come to that. But just understand, they use crises. The crisis of COVID created so much fear that for the first time in recorded history, like we had never seen before, all the nations of the world came together in cooperation. Now, when they met in June, because they realized that COVID is supposedly fading away, what was the theme of their June topic? It was climate change. And I think we'll probably see that as the next crises that will be used to bring about this worldwide reach among the nations of the world. One third of all their sessions in June dealt with the subject of climate change. This is biblically significant because when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he will come on the scene in an atmosphere of chaos. 
Millions of people will have been caught up in the air. The world will be in turmoil. And it will be the chaos, the crisis of the day that will cause people to be willing to abdicate freedoms that they have in order to have a sense of security. Do I think the World Economic Forum is the Great Reset? No, they're just the Great Preset. The Great Reset is yet to come. Now, how can we apply this portion of Scripture? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, I learned from this text of Scripture that when you reject the truth, you will believe a lie. When you reject the truth, you will believe a lie. Truth and error are opposite sides of the same coin because the Bible teaches to refuse the truth is to embrace a lie. That's what we read about Jesus' prophecy this morning in John 5. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Same is true today. If a man refuses to listen to his doctor and what he prescribes is the right solution, he will soon adapt the wrong solution, the wrong remedy. A person who rejects the truth of creation will soon embrace the false lie of evolution. And if a person will not respond to the message of Jesus and leave the broad road and get on the narrow road that leads to life, they will stay on the broad road that will lead to destruction. Jesus came fully credited with all of the essential ingredients showing that he was no ordinary man, but he was the one that the prophet spoke of. A baby would be born, and the baby's name will become, be called Mighty God. And yet, what did they do? Paul reminds us in Romans 10, it's what most Gentiles do today. The average Gentile thinks he's good enough to earn heaven. Seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, Paul said, they rejected the righteousness that God gifts to people. You need a righteousness that you cannot earn or merit that is gifted to you. If it is by grace, he'll say, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. And as you bring it back to the Jewish nation, they never once ever embraced a false Christ until Jesus came. And when they rejected Jesus, now they have a history throughout the ages of having embraced pseudo-messiahs. When you reject the truth, you will believe a lie, and that's true not just of Jews, it's true of Gentiles. Secondly, mark it down big and plain, to those who are saved, we need to be discerning. If you're saved, you need to be discerning. Even today, without the Antichrist to do Satan's bidding, Christians are still in danger of being distracted or deceived. Remember, for everything that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. He has a duplicate. Here's a chart that might help you to see a comparison between God's agenda through Christ and the evil one's agenda through Antichrist. Christ will come and perform miracles and signs and wonders. We studied last time from 2 Thessalonians 2. Satan will come through his Antichrist and do miracles, signs, and wonders. Jesus claimed to be God incarnate. The Antichrist, though he's not God incarnate, though he is possessed of the evil one, he will claim to be God incarnate. That's part of the abomination of desolation. 
Jesus inspires the worship of God the Father. The Antichrist will inspire the worship of Satan. We just read that. Christ's followers during the tribulation, they are given a seal on their forehead, 144,000 who cannot be destroyed that they might preach the gospel to the world. Antichrist followers, they're sealed in a different way with a number on their forehead or hand. Christ, his name is worthy. Satan's name, his antichrist, well, the text will describe as we walk through, it's a blasphemous name. Jesus sits on a throne, not just now in heaven, but someday on a literal throne in Jerusalem where he'll rule for a thousand years, and we'll see why. Satan, his antichrist, he'll also rule on a throne. Jesus is married to a holy bride. Satan, his revelation, 17 and 18 teaches through his antichrist, is married to a harlot. Here's another chart that helps us to see the comparisons. Again, Christ comes riding on a white horse, so does the Antichrist. Christ has an army behind him, so does the Antichrist. Christ dies a violent death, so does the Antichrist. Christ is resurrected. Well, he mimics resurrection, the Antichrist. Christ will reign the world, so will the Antichrist. Christ is a member of the Holy Trinity. The Antichrist is a member of this unholy trinity. In every possible way, Satan will try to counterfeit Jesus. Now listen to me. Without the Antichrist here on the planet, he is still doing it. For everything that God has, Satan has his counterfeit. There are counterfeit Christians today. They're called hypocrites. There's a counterfeit church in our day, just as there was in the first century when John describes one church in Revelation 2 as the synagogue of Satan. There are deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons in our day. There are false Christs, false messiahs. There's great signs and wonders, Jesus said, that are coming, if possible, to deceive even the elect. These are perilous times. So how do you stand up against these perilous times? You get into this book. You see, and that's what's been jettisoned. God alone will evaluate their ministry, but Rick Warren and Bill Hybels did a great disservice to the evangelical church. Bill Hybels came out as a fake. All these women that he was with all these years, and people were telling me, why don't I follow Bill Hybels' advice? Because it was contrary to Scripture. Oh, you'd give a 20-minute message and just a little fluff and a verse here and there to make people feel good. That's not what the church needs. The church needs solid biblical truth because that's what will change your life and give you discernment in the days that we live in. And this is part of the reason for the coming apostasy, why so many of these cultural Christians are now turning away from the Christian faith and they will embrace the Antichrist. Because you see, in Hybels and Warren's theology, you can hold on to your sin at the same time as have Christ as your Savior. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews said to believers. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Solid food, he said, is for the mature who, because of practice, 
have their senses trained, gymnasio, we get our word gymnasium from it. They've trained their senses to discern good and evil. You need the book, you need the truth of the book, and you need application of that truth. And as you exercise what you know, you grow and you develop discernment. And that's largely what the church lacks today. Third and finally, the human heart was made to be occupied by the Lord. Now, the Antichrist will accept the offer that Jesus refused in Matthew 4 there in the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he would bow down and worship him, which was a legitimate, bring that slide up, they're still writing it, which was a legitimate offer, the last slide, (laughs) sorry, a legitimate offer. Why? Because what Adam lost, Satan gained. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just don't go by the cross. And Jesus refused. What he refused, this coming man of sin will embrace. The human heart, it says, number three, was made to be occupied by the Lord. Now, Satan is going to control this world leader. And he will control people today who refused Jesus. Remember, the Bible says you are of your father, the devil. Once you've passed that point of accountability, the Bible says you are of your father, the devil. And God wants to occupy your heart. He wants to give you a heavenly father, but your sin needs to be forgiven. You need to be indwelt by the spirit. Jesus said it three times over, you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. I don't care how religious you are, unless you are born again. Being born again is not some supercharged Christian. It is what a Christian is. You must be born a second time to enter the kingdom of God. And if your heart today has not been born a second time, then I invite you to call upon Jesus right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you, in simple, childlike faith, say, Lord Jesus, save me. Trust him to do it. If you trust him to do it, you'll be 100% sure. Because remember, salvation is the gift of God. It's not of works. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You say, that's too easy. It shatters all human pride. You have to admit that your sin is wrong, that is placed a death blow on you, for the soul that sins must die. But if you will put your faith where God put your sin on a substitute, Jesus, who took that death blow for you, whom he raised from the dead, if you will call upon him today, he will instantly and eternally save you and begin to change you. Now, Father, for the rest of us who maybe have already crossed that line, help us not to be babes, but to pursue milk, to learn the truth of Scripture, to chew on it, to meditate on it, to apply it, that we might have some basic discernment in this day that we live in. We ask it to the glory of Christ and in his holy name. Amen.